The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, where minds meet machines. We founded Artificiality to help people make sense of artificial intelligence. Every week, we publish essays, podcasts, and research to help you be smarter about AI. Please check out all of Artificiality at www.artificiality.world. In this episode, we speak with cognitive neuroscientist Stephen Fleming about theories of consciousness and how they relate to artificial intelligence. We discuss key concepts like global workspace theory, higher order theories, computational functionalism, and how neuroscience research on consciousness in humans can inform our understanding of whether machines may ever achieve consciousness. In particular, we talk with Steve about a recent research paper, Consciousness in Artificial Intelligence, which he co-authored with Patrick Butlin, Robert Long, Joshua Bengio, and several others. Steve provides an overview of different perspectives from philosophy and psychology on what mechanisms may give rise to consciousness. He explains global and local theories, the idea of a higher order system monitoring lower level representations, and similarities and differences between human and machine intelligence. The conversation explores current limitations on neuroscience for studying consciousness empirically and opportunities for interdisciplinary collaboration between neuroscientists and AI researchers. Stephen Fleming is Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the Department of Experimental Psychology, University College London. Steve's work aims to understand the mechanisms supporting human subjective experience and metacognition by employing a combination of psychophysics, brain imaging, and computational modeling. He is the author of Know Thyself, a book on the science of metacognition about which we interviewed him on artificiality in December of 2021. Thanks again for joining us uh, on the podcast. We're excited to talk to you again today. Um, perhaps, can you start off by talking about what, what inspired you and your co-authors to write this research report now? Sure. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here. And this paper, really, it was the brainchild of Rob Long and Patrick Butlin, um, who are two philosophers um, uh, who are really in at this intersection of artificial intelligence and philosophy of mind. And it really came out of a workshop that the two of them put together in Oxford, I guess, two years ago now, um, which was designed as a way to start having a conversation between psychologists, neuroscientists, philosophers, and people working in the field of artificial intelligence. And it's rare to, even though these fields are all allied in their interests in mind and um, the brain and what it means to have intelligent behavior, it's rare that you get that kind of mix of people in the same room. So that was really interesting and exciting. And really it was quite a, bl it was a blank slate, essentially. It was 
a one day meeting aimed at trying to reduce down the space of the conversation around whether we could ever make some kind of academic statement about the possibility of artificial consciousness. So this is clearly something that's been talked about so often and it's a regular favorite of sci-fi writers and so on. But given the progress in the neuroscience of consciousness over the past two or three decades, the hope in that initial meeting was that could we bring to bear some of that understanding that we're getting from experiments on the human brain and try and use that as a solid platform on which to build some inference as to whether artificial systems are conscious. Um, So it's really driven by Patrick and Rob, and they had a difficult task because essentially their task over the, the subsequent two years was herding various stripes of cats um, in various different fields with various different languages, ways of talking, jargon, and so on, to bring them together to, I think, make a a really interesting statement about what might be possible going forward for pronouncing on the consciousness of artificial systems. So I view this as very much a, it's almost like an exercise in meta science. It's like, it's not saying we are able to say today whether a system is conscious or not. I think we're very far away from being able to do that. But it's, in a sense, like a recipe for how one might be able to do that as the theories of consciousness progress in on the neuroscience side and as we get ever more um, impressive AI on the artificial system side. One of the, uh, I mean, it would be quite an achievement just to corral those striped cats of yeah. the human side because <laughs> there's so many different variations and breeds of, of theories of consciousness, which we'll get to in a minute because I think that's really um, helpful um, uh, to, to give listeners a bit of a, an overview of that. But given that half of this is is AI, and half as human, and the AI side is is sort of has this um, tricky problem of um, how do you you can't just ask an AI whether it's conscious because that's an obvious place that that could be deception or what mm-hmm. have you. Can you talk a little bit about these sort of two kind of core um, grounded? almost it's almost the boundaries that um you guys put around this paper of um uh, computational functionalism and being really theory mm-hmm. heavy not being so empirical and why those two are so important to the shape of the paper and where you end up taking the scholarship and the academic statement as you said yeah yeah no i mean there's quite a lot to unpack there so i guess the i, I mean the first thing to say and which is, I think, an important um, first step is to try and demarcate what we mean by consciousness and what we mean by intelligence. And these are not the same thing. The notion is that you can have intelligent behavior without anything that it is like to experience that. So this is the the hard problem of consciousness. Why should any kind of um, functions being performed by a physical system like the brain come along with any kind of subjective experience. And 
vice versa you might have a have a biological brain that's doing very little but might have an experience of doing very little so there seems to be a distinction there um a fairly broad one between what psychologists would call intelligent behavior and what philosophers of mind would call phenomenal experience or subjective experience so you could you could have a um uh, uh, some sort of agent using uh, who that's learning through reinforcement learning uh, which isn't mm. you know shows intelligent behavior but has no subjective experience um, and you could have some sort of stimulus response behavior that actually does have some sort of ex- subjective experience we just don't know how to measure that or how to how to understand that yeah exactly exactly and i think you know there's existence proof of those two cases in humans so you can have you know very low level reflexes which seem to unfold without any kind of subjective experience involved um and so there's i guess a a kind of running assumption going through the science of consciousness that it is possible to contrast conditions where you have some kind of neural processing going on and in one case you're conscious of that thing and in another case you're not and that's really served as the kind of bedrock of the experimental method in the in the science of consciousness. And that then leads on to this problem in AI, as you said um, just beforehand, about this gaming problem, that assuming that intelligent behavior and consciousness can come apart, then you might end up in a situation where because you've trained a system to do amazing things, like mimic human language, if you ask ChatGPT, are you conscious, then it could come back with a response, a quite eloquent response. But whether that has anything, any bearing on the philosophical notion of subjective experience seems quite shaky and dubious. And this has been the basis, I guess, of all these controversies recently, like Blake Lemoyne claiming that the large language model was conscious and Essentially, the the linguistic fluency, because we're so used to associating that with conscious experience in humans, we're sucked in by that. Um, and so there's this kind of gray area. And some, some people have said, well, no, we should take that seriously. You know, we should actually take reports of um, saying that a system is conscious as, serious, uh, as seriously as perhaps we take them in, in humans. Susan Snyder's made this point that if we were somehow able to isolate the large language model from any knowledge of, say, the neuroscience of consciousness, the philosophy of mind literature, and it spontaneously said, hang on, I, you know, I've just... What's going on I'm here? Having this strange, <laughs> what's going on? I'm having a strange experience. Um, I don't so, know what to name so it, though, because I haven't learned the word yet. What's the word? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm somewhat... You know, I thought that was an intriguing idea. I'm not personally fully convinced because I still feel as though you're resting on um, an architecture there that is just so unlike the architecture that we assume is involved in phenomenal experience in humans. But I think it was an interesting idea in terms of trying to get an indicator that might somehow be immune from this gaming problem. Um, but the the approach that Patrick and Rob and the other authors in this report took was somewhat different. It was essentially to say behavior is not going to be enough here because of this problem of being able to game it. 
And instead, we need to take a theory-heavy approach. We need to essentially take what we know about these um, markers of consciousness from theories that are being developed on the human side and ask, do they have similar, um, do, do, do artificial systems is, exhibit similar markers? And that then leads you on to a broad domain of um, way of setting, the, the way of um, trying to set up the problem of consciousness known as computational functionalism. So this is the idea that the um, any system that implements the relevant kind of computational function is conscious. So if we were to find out what that function is in the human brain, then we could abstract away from the the substrate of the human brain and say if we could discover similar computations in another system, whether that's a neuronal system, a silicon-based system, or anything else that's enabling the similar type of computation, then it would also qualify as being conscious. And I think sometimes that idea of computational functionalism seems a little odd when you first think about it, because it means that somehow these mental features are floating free of, well, they're certainly floating free of biological brains in that, in that characterization. But it is actually quite a common assumption in psychology and other branches of computational neuroscience that the relevant level of analysis for understanding, say, memory or decision-making or um, perception and so on is not necessarily the exact neurons that are be doing the job. It's the general um, processing pipeline, if you like, that gives you the function of being able to make a decision. And the, the idea in this paper is that if we endorse that, then that gets us away. It gets us out of the starting blocks because we can then say, well, we can look at whether there are similar functions that have been posed to support consciousness in the human brain and ask whether they, they might have analogs in artificial systems. Right. So just so, so I understand that better. So instead of looking at the system at the level of, say, the chemistry or the physics or um, or even the, the yep. basic sort of structure, you're looking at the next level up, if you like. You're looking at how information or how something is represented and being able to sort of uh, and build the theories around that particular level of the system. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think that, you know, this it is important to recognise that this is an assumption of this paper. So if you disagree with that assumption, if you think that a proper explanation of consciousness in humans and other animals is going to require something about biology, about the wetware of the brain, then the kind of arguments we, we advance in the Butlin paper are not going to convince you because you're going to essentially deny that first assumption. Right. So if you, if you thought that consciousness is a function of being alive then you, this doesn't, you're going to disagree. That's exactly it. Go yeah. On. And there's also an interesting intermediate position, which I personally find attractive, which is that you might find that when you actually implement all the physical requirements for the kind of computation that supports, say, consciousness or other aspects of the human mind, then you might end up building something that looks quite like a biological embodied brain 
when you're finished. Um, so at the moment, I think a lot of the discussion around, say, theories of consciousness is relatively abstract. Um, there's, I guess, a broad assumption in a lot of um, neuro AI that you can essentially port across from neurons to um, nodes in a neural network. And you can essentially kind of go back and forth between those levels of description. But a single neuron is doing amazingly delicate um, computation. You know, it's got thousands of dendritic inputs that are all very sensitive to local context and so on. And so there's an argument that's made, and Daniel Dennett has made this point as well, that it might it might not be the case that life or biology are somehow kind of there's something intrinsic about them that supports consciousness but it might be that when you cash out all the computations going on that we don't fully understand yet that you end up with a quotes artificial system that actually looks pretty biological so i think that's a really interesting intermediate position to 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 consider can you describe some examples of these things one layer up you know these functions that we might be able mm. to evaluate and test for just give some examples so we can put some tangible ideas in the listener's mind sure yeah so i guess one um prominent uh example in the area of consciousness research is the notion of global broadcast so there's a broad division between local and global theories of consciousness so a local theory of consciousness would say that your consciousness of a sensory property like a visual experience can be supported by information processing going on within um cortex that's dedicated to that sensory modality so local to that area of the brain whereas a global theory would say that any processing that goes on that's restricted to that local area of cortex is not uh, is not conscious it's being processed unconsciously and that to become conscious of it, you need to somehow put that information um, in a more global form across the rest of the brain. And then global theories differ in terms of how that is cashed out. So a global workspace theory says that you put it into some common workspace. A higher order theory says that you somehow monitor the primary sensory representation in a way that recruits these global resources. So the kinds of, um, to take global workspace as an example, the kind of computation that we're referring to here is, imagine you have some modality-specific neural network, and that's how a lot of people think the visual system might work, for instance. So you've got some kind of input coming in, going to primary visual cortex and then via recurrent interactions with other visual areas that's elaborated and becomes more and more categorized into faces and other objects and so on. But that's all modality specific. That's all dedicated, if you like, to solving the problem of vision. And then the global workspace theory would say, once you're done essentially with that kind of domain specific processing, that representation of say, the cat you're looking at gets broadcast into a global workspace that then is available for 
um, language, for other types of flexible action, for memory, for doing anything you like with that representation, essentially. Um, and so, yeah, go on. I was going to say, I was going to try an example. So if I'm walking down the yeah. street and I see a golden retriever and that happens just to seeing it and it's just a visual thing that's local, but when it cues memories of the golden retrievers I used to have and Helen likes to laugh at me that I get a little tear in my eye and I start anticipating that we might actually get another golden retriever and I start remembering <laughs> all of the fuzziness of digging my hands into their fur, that's more global? Yes, with one caveat, which would be oh. that a global theory would say that even before you get to the retrieving the memories, the emotional response, even before that, just being conscious of the dog requires the global broadcast. Okay. It's very helpful. Thank you. It also gives something for Helen to laugh at me about for the rest of today. So, <laughs> so, so he's not, so it's less about being um, conscious of, uh, uh, so below that there's something going on like it's picking up an, uh, uh, you know, the edge of an eye or what have you, or something that says mm. it's a dog because it's fuzzy. But then yep. that, that once, once it's the dog, that, uh, is broadcast to the global workspace. It competes for other things, which has got to have something to do in there with attention. And then that becomes available to all of the other connections. Yeah, that's essentially the picture. So the, the, the theory I'm describing here is was originally proposed by the psychologist Bernie Bars back in the 80s um, as a kind of cognitive model of how consciousness might work. And then the neuroscientist Stanislas Dehen picked this up um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and made this into a neuroscientific theory. So essentially mapped Bernie Bars's global workspace, which Bars characterized as a blackboard or theater where kind of something goes into something central. And Dehen proposed that the association areas of the cortex, parietal and prefrontal regions, are supporting this global workspace. Now, what the workspace is, what it kind of means, like what it's doing, this has always, I think, been left somewhat vague. Like e even though um, Stan Dehan has, you know, these beautiful experiments that show that when you contrast the difference between being conscious of a stimulus and a stimulus being invisible, you get what they refer to as ignition, of these workspace-like regions, it's always been quite hard to pin down like what exactly are those regions doing um, computationally. And I think this is partly because we're constrained by other, other branches of neuroscience. Like people don't really know what the prefrontal cortex is doing broad, in broad strokes. You know, there's lots of data, but until we have a, I think a, a more solid picture of what these higher order regions of the human brain are doing, that's always going to remain somewhat vague. And so hopefully you can then see, well, that poses constraints on how vague or precise we can be about the connection over to AI. Because if we have to remain vague about what global, global broadcast means, which I think we do at the moment, then it's going to be hard to know whether you've built an artificial system that really meets that constraint. And at the moment, the um, uh, from what I understand about the the way that the AI researchers are taking this as um, more to having almost a, 
um, a, a, a traffic cop, you know, something that's directing traffic and making decisions at a higher level, which almost strikes me as a little bit of a combination between global workspace and, and higher order theories. It's a little bit of a hybrid of the two where it's there's higher level representations, but there's also this broadcast, this competition for um, broad for sharing the information and directing the information across to other parts of the network. Yeah, I mean, this is where I would need to defer to you know the AI colleagues on that on that paper, and I'm you know this is more me looking on from the outside at those at the, what they're developing. But my understanding is that there are aspects of some models that are being developed, for instance, by Joshua Bengio and and others, where there's this kind of shared latent space. There's something that looks a bit like a, a modality independent representation um, that is then kind of farmed out to different consumer systems. And there's been some interesting work from um, colleagues in the field. Ryota Kanai is one person who's doing a lot of work on both AI, but also he's um, worked previously in the neuroscience of consciousness. And he's written a couple of papers trying to essentially analyze AI architectures from the point of view of saying, does it or does it not have what we would construe as a global workspace? And I think there are some indications that perhaps it doesn't have all the features, but the general sense among the people writing this paper was that it would be if we want, if, if someone really wanted to do it, it would be not be hard to do at all. So what about the um, higher order theories and, and what they bring in, mm. um, and, and particularly around some of the stuff that, that you specialize in, in metacognition? Um, it, it, we sort of left off our last podcast almost wanting to do a, wanting to have this part of the conversation, which we are now more ready for. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so so higher order theories is another um, way of thinking about global theories of consciousness. Like, what what is the, what are the global what is the global resource doing? Um, and the starting point here is in philosophy of mind, and philosophers have proposed for a number of years that perhaps what makes something conscious is some form of self-monitoring, some form of meta-representation. So essentially the system, if you have what philosophers call a first-order representation, so when something is perhaps just represented in that visual system we were just talking about, then that would remain unconscious until a higher-order part of the brain meta-represents that. Essentially there's some kind of internal knowledge that, or thought about that first order representation. And so these that general idea has been recently developed in more computational terms by Hakran Lau and some work we've been doing in our lab as well. And the idea here is that what might make something conscious is essentially a higher order system monitoring how reliable our first order representations are. So this then draws a strong connection with how confident we are in different percepts. So the idea is that if we are conscious of something, that's when we're 
essentially telling ourselves we are confident we are seeing this or hearing this. We're not doing it on an explicit level, but we're doing it on a more implicit level. It's like the brain tagging sensory experiences as trustworthy. So there's an interesting backstory about why you might want to do this, um, which I think is quite compelling, which is also lends it uh, a more evolutionary explanation. So like why would consciousness evolve in the first place? And so the idea here is that if you have a system that's complex enough that starts doing internal simulation, that starts being able to imagine the future just like we can, then you need some higher order system to keep track of what's real and what's just being imagined. Because if you didn't have that higher order system, then you'd go around acting on all your imaginations and that wouldn't be very, uh, you'd probably rapidly um, come unstuck. If Hence you the evolutionary argument. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, and, and one thing that um, some people in AI have pointed out is that huh, that sounds really similar to what a generative adversarial network is doing, essentially trying to discriminate, is it A or B? You know, am I getting tricked by my own imagination? Didn't Hakuin Lau have some link to that as well? He talks about generative yes. models. Yeah, exactly. So um, Sam Gershman, the computational neuroscientist, wrote a paper on this, and Hakuin also then uh, talked in similar terms that perhaps that one link into AI is that you know, essentially what the human brain might have is some, uh, in broad strokes, um, discriminator trying to tell whether you're perceiving or imagining. And when that discriminator says you're perceiving, then that is what we call conscious experience. That is, it gives us um, this belief, this incontrovertible belief that there's an external reality out there um and so i think it has it, it has an interesting kind of illusionist flavor to it because it says that you know what what that's explaining is not necessarily the intrinsic nature of conscious experience but it's explaining the the um it's giving a reason for why we as humans go around saying there's this amazing world out there that is like you know, we have this subjective experience. And the idea from these variants of higher order theory is that the reason we say we have this subjective experience, the reason why we think consciousness exists and is because we have this algorithm running behind the scenes that's trying to tease apart whether what is going on in our sensory cortex is essentially being driven from the outside or being driven from the inside as imagination. So that sounds like there's quite a lot of quite a lot of crossover with predictive processing. Absolutely. In terms of like almost like predictive processing sort of sits underneath that as a So what what are the uh, the most compelling in your mind um, empirical evidence for higher order as consciousness as opposed to just simply perceiving? Hmm. Yeah, well, just to pick up on the predictive processing uh, angle, so it, it, this general approach doesn't have to sit on top of predictive processing, but the approach we've been taking in our lab does make that link explicit. Um, so we've been trying to develop a version of this story that essentially um, 
extends out regular predictive processing architectures to include a higher order monitor of whether the predictive architecture is essentially being run in a bottom-up or top-down manner. It's trying to essentially figure out that. Um, and yeah, we've we've been finding that to be quite profitable because we've we've used that as a way of developing hypotheses about empirical data. And this is with a postdoc in my group, Nadina Dijkstra, where we've being asked, we're, we're bringing people into the lab and we're giving them, um, essentially putting them in min- minimal situations where we ask them to imagine simple stimuli. And then sometimes we fade in the real stimulus at the same time that we're asking them to imagine that stimulus. And that provides us with a really rich psychophysical test bed where we can probe people on this higher order question. We can actually ask them on that trial, did you see something real or were you just imagining it? And so we're now setting up a bunch of experiments using brain imaging as well, where we're hoping to use that kind of setup to probe brain activation that we think is involved in this higher order reality monitoring decision. And so I think that will get interesting data on the potential neural basis for these higher order mechanisms um but then in terms of what you were asking just now about yeah what's the evidence um for these higher order states contributing to conscious experience i think that it's there isn't much actually it's early days um when you look at there was a nice meta-analysis done by liab mudrick's group a few months ago where they essentially looked at the literature for experiments that had um, claimed to test particular theories. And there were plenty of papers testing global workspace theory, but very few testing higher order theory. So I think one um, line of evidence is that if you have um, damage to the prefrontal areas of the brain, then you often screw up implicit metacognition you you essentially impair the ability to assign confidence to your perception now it's very hard to tie that directly to changes in conscious experience because you have this kind of catch-22 because you don't know the the patient cannot tell you if their conscious experience has changed if they are unable to monitor the fact their conscious experience might have changed so you're you're essentially left with these indirect methods psychophysical methods and there's been very very few studies maybe two studies that i can think of that have applied systematic methods within psychophysics and metacognition to really probe whether there are subtle higher order changes following prefrontal lesions and the I think based on that very small number of studies, it's encouraging. There are there are reasons to believe that these higher order states are contributing to not just to the ability to report, but also essentially the force of the the force of your experience. Um, and there are ongoing experiments that we and others are doing to try and try and test exactly this. Hi, it's Dave with just a brief interruption. If you're enjoying our podcast. We'd love it if you'd share it with someone who you think might enjoy it too. And check out everything that Artificiality has to offer at artificiality.world. Reach out anytime. We'd love to hear from you. Back to the interview. I know he's itching to ask well, a question. I, I, I'm, I'm, t- I'm, I'm going off in a different direction, um, which is 
as you talk about the the sort of the category, the things we know global, about global workspace and higher order, mm. um, and the what seems like uh, sort of a, 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 an immeasurable amount that we still don't yet know, right? We do. We, there's there's a lot. Absolutely. That we, you know, and as you think about collaborating with AI scientists, as you have in this paper, one of the things that we've seen in the AI industry is. Um, uh, they pick a target and say, we need to figure out whether this AI can be, uh, you know, as, 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 as smart as a doctor or whatever way they want to phrase that. And so they look at it and they say, well, there's one way we know how to measure it is whether it can pass the MCAT. And it misses this other vast, immeasurable thing that says what makes a really good physician. And there's so many different things, but they're actually untestable mm. or there's some things that we probably don't really even understand about yet about the, the interpersonal relations or something or like that. Or it's context dependent. Or it's context dependent. But in your world, there's plenty where you're saying, as you're describing this, you're like, well, the global works, we, we don't really understand how it's working yet. Or this part of it, we don't understand. Mm. How do you think about that, that handoff where you're saying – Kind of, this is what we do know about consciousness from from neuroscience, and then seeing, you know, you can see how the AI folks would then race towards those few things that you're able to describe mm. and 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 have a measurable test, and they're going to go see we can do those things. Now we're conscious, and you're like, whoa, wait a second, there's this huge other bit over here that the kind I don't of necessary but not sufficient. Yes, kind of, yeah. yeah. I'm just curious how you think about that that handoff. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think in general, I feel that there's a lot of uncertainties about the indicators that were proposed in that that paper. And I really come back to that comment I made before about, in a sense, I feel like this was a mainly an exercise in meta science, how to do this kind of science, how to do this kind of interdisciplinary work. And to you know, to get the project off the ground, we engaged in this survey of possible indicators. Um, and I think it's going to be, it, it's going to be an iterative process now, right? So um, these are provisional middle, provisional models of component processes. And one thing I didn't say before is that, you know, you can combine different aspects of different theories. So you people have suggested, for instance, that um I mean Hakwan Lao himself in his in his book, um laying out his version of higher order theory, suggests that this process of essentially monitoring how trustworthy your perceptual representations are could be the key switch, if you like, that gets things into a global workspace. So the two theories are not at odds with each other. There are odds in the in 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 what is primary for enabling conscious experience. But you probably are going to need elements of lots of different um, of, of of many of these ideas in a final working model. Biology is messy. It's not going to be that one person is going to come along and say, "I've I've solved it." Right. So that and it's also, I mean. Perhaps we want to get into this. I don't know. But I think that's also what I've got some misgivings about these recent adversarial collaborations, which I've also been part of, because they essentially set up this winner-loser competition where it's almost as if one theory is out there and all we have to do is cross out the ones that are going to lose and then we'll be ended up, end up with the final one. Now, 
I think you, it might be that one day we'll be in a position to do something like that. I mean, in the 1910s, the experiments that were done to try and contrast Newtonian physics with general relativity were of that flavor that, you know, they, they were comprehensive theories. They disagreed on a precise um, metric and they could be tested against each other. But I think we're a very long way away from that in the neuroscience of consciousness. We have provisional models, component processes alone. They are not going to be sufficient. And essentially then we have to, recognize that the bridge over to AI is going to be an iterative one. And one really interesting thing that kind of came out of these conversations with AI of people, of, of, of people doing research on that side of things is that a lot of the messages that were coming back were kind of saying, you know, we recognize this is somewhat vague, but you do need to realize that if you kind of made this a little bit more precise, we could probably code it up tomorrow and everyone was like, oh, okay. Um, hey, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it, in a way, like the response, and I think the right response was not, oh God, we're going to build a conscious robot tomorrow. It was, yeah, okay, well that puts pressure back on us to realize that our theories are probably much too immature to be engaging in that kind of exercise. And you, but you, you describe this over a history, you know, different people over time and, and the development of these theories. And I'm struck by the work that you're doing in your lab right now. Am I imagining hmm. something? We'll just stick with the dog. <laughs> am I imagining a dog or am I actually sensing a dog? That's one of those things mm -hmm. that from the outside, one might think is a pretty foundational difference to understand. Mm. And, but we're still in a state in neuroscience where we're discovering something that from the outside people would say, we don't know how to, how to determine that yet, right? But it, it, it's because there's so many like groundbreaking things that you're working on in your field that would be sort of basic, necess necessary, you know, um, for AI, right? Is the AI actually imagining it mm. or is it sensing it, right? That's, that's actually a pretty good one right now to understand for generative AI, to understand whether it's what it, what it's the state mm. of its consciousness is. Yeah. Well, I'm imagine things all the time and I'm not conscious, you know, it's called dreaming. Exa yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, <laughs> but it's a, but it's an important thing that you're in, in your field, you're still working on some things that are really quite um, foundational. It sort of makes me think this arc of us understanding our own consciousness well enough to be able to define it so that the AI folks can actually code it might be quite a ways off, much farther away than many people in the AI space will say, because they're just thinking, well, how long is it going to take me to write this code versus I don't even know what code I'm going to even try and write yet. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I guess there's a, there's lots to say about that. I mean, one one thing is that the technologies we have for non-invasively imaging the human brain are still in relative infancy, and they're improving every day. Um, I mean, functional MRI, so the ability to use MRI to essentially take fairly rapid snapshots of brain activity, only came to be widespread in the late 90s. So we're talking just over 20 years ago. And even though techniques like EEG were available before that, they have fairly coarse spatial resolution. 
And I think, you know, the, 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 the difficulty with consciousness is that you need the human in the loop to validate your theories and ideas. So if you, if you want to know, say, how the hypothalamus works to control, say, breathing, you're probably much better off going to a mouse model and using single neural recordings to precisely dissect that circuit. And people do, and they're doing beautiful work. But that strategy is not going to cut it for consciousness because you need to keep the human in the loop. So, you And we should absolutely be collaborating with people doing animal neuroscience to use the same paradigms, the same tools, the same um essentially to compare and contrast the data we get from different kinds of um recording modalities but you're not going to get away from the fact you're going to have to have humans as the only people as the only species we know who can reliably validate reports of what they're conscious of and not conscious of to compare that against data from brain imaging and so i think that's one of the reasons that we're where we we are where we are as a field at the moment is essentially that it feels like quite early days because there's limitations on the technology for one Mm -hmm. but there's also kind of conceptual unclarity that needs to still be refined this word consciousness is not very well defined um it doesn't stop us doing interesting experiments on it but as the science progresses then it's going to need to become more and more precise. And I think that people starting to develop computational models of what we mean by conscious awareness will hopefully help refine that. But all of that is quite, yeah, it's quite early days. Um, And so I think that, you know, the being able to incrementally update the theories as those kind of data start coming in is clearly a major project for the, the science of consciousness. And I reckon that what will happen is that that iterative project is going to take a long time. And hopefully there will be the continued conversation with AI researchers as well. Like the, uh, we started with this paper, but I think that the research on the AI side is going to just, accelerate away from that slower science and so you're going to end up with this mismatch between our understanding of consciousness in humans which is hopefully going to continue to progress and the apparent consciousness the general public will start to attribute to these artificial systems so we're going to be i think we're in in quite soon in a place of quite strong mismatch yeah, can you let's go into that a little bit more because it it seems very important and um, part of it is what we notice already is a lot of um, confusion and conflation between consciousness, intelligence, sentience, um, mm. uh, the the morality of suffering. There's there's so many different parts that people um, have trouble pulling apart. That seems to me part of the issue of of um, public engagement with machines and the sense of whether they're conscious. But um, I'm really curious how you've sort of come to see that as, as the, as an issue. Yeah. I mean, I think that it really goes back to what we talked about at the start, which is that we have such strong priors when it comes to apparently intelligent behavior 
so when we see a system that is has high facility with language like gpt4 then it seems almost irresistible to start attributing some kind of mentality behind that language and i think clearly these systems are improving in their mimicry of various aspects of the of, of human mental function every day and so people are going to intuitively start assuming that there is something more behind them now as we've just been talking about i don't want to give the impression that that is a wrong assumption you know it could well end up being a right assumption at some point in the future i think probably not now given the work we did in that paper i think there was general consensus that current transformer architectures don't meet or they hardly meet any of the criteria that were laid out in that paper for conscious experience so i think the general consensus there was that they are in a sense mimicking um that that side of things um but you know that if if a system is going to seem lifelike hold conversations we increasingly use it for advice assistance even therapy friendship then i think we're going to end up quite rapidly in a position where we're going to be a bit like the kids watching the pixar movie and attributing reality to these characters um and perhaps a lot of that will be benign you know the fact that you know my daughter thinks her mini mouse is real yeah it, that's fine right that, that's like it's nice um to to have that and as long as there's no there's no i guess downsides to that then you know perhaps that's a world we can we can um envisage but i think one real danger there is that if people start investing emotional significance into relationships with seemingly conscious AI because they think they're conscious, then we'll be in a situation perhaps where we're essentially diverting resources and moral attention from agents, humans and animals who are actually conscious um, and essentially kind of like miss, yeah, misdirecting resources. Now, this this also that that kind of discussion also rests on some hidden assumption which is that we assume consciousness comes along with some kind of moral responsibility so if we think something is conscious then we have a moral moral responsibility to that system and that's i think an intuition that a lot of people share but it's also one that philosophers sometimes debate like if is it enough just to be a conscious system or do you need to have strong conscious valence? Like, do you need to have the potential for suffering and so on? So I think that's a whole other area of discussion, but as a more general point, you know, as society begins to attribute conscious experience to artificial systems, I think we are going to need to grapple with some pretty serious ethical issues. What do we, what do we know about how we determine if something is conscious or not. When you're thinking, uh, I don't know whether this fits into the workspace and higher order theory concepts, mm. but but when you think about um, the sort of question of, well, we might think, we might interact with them as if we think they're conscious, right? And uh, how, how, do we, how, do we, how do we make that determination about whether it's conscious or not? And... Also, might there be 
signifiers that we, you know, put into these products to be able to, you mm. know, to signify that they aren't conscious, you know, to be able to sort of flag mm. that this, this is mini mouse, not an actual mouse, you know, like, I'm just curious yeah, yeah. how we, how we make that, that observational um, conclusion you that mean, something a, a, is as, How do we as humans? How do we as humans? Like what, like, I, I'm yeah, just yeah, curious, yeah. has anyone ever tested, like, how do we know? Um, yeah, so, so yeah, so there's a whole field of, um, robotics that is looking at like what gets us to anthropomorphize robots and um what's the influence of different ways of presenting um uh, embodied robots um there's actually less on disembodied systems like large language models and so on so a postdoc in my group clara colombato recently ran an experiment we've got a preprint on this online it's under review at the moment where we just asked that question. We realized that no one really asked this um, of the general public. Like, do, first of all, have you heard of ChatGPT? So we, we use ChatGPT as the most well-known example. And we gave subjects a little description of what it is. And then we also gave them descriptions of phenomenal experience. So we said, you know, humans have this subjective experience of the world, and this contrasts against other um, devices like a toaster. I think that was one of the examples. Anyway, there's a, there, we borrowed language from previous studies that philosophers had run on people's understanding of experience. And so you essentially give people a little prompt so they, you know, they, they hopefully know what we're talking about when we, when we talk about experience. And then we asked people very simply to fill out a questionnaire about do you think ChatGPT has conscious experience and how much? And then also, do you think it has all these other mental state attributes, intelligence, knowledge, communication, capacity for pain, for regret, for, I think there was about 70 different mental state words. And then we applied the dimensionality reduction technique to those data we found that there were essentially two principal components there one tracking conscious experience correlated very well with this experience dimension and the other tracking what we might call intelligence like the ability to know things and to communicate things and so on and what we found is that essentially we found two things one is perhaps unsurprisingly people thought chat gpt was much more of an intelligent agent than an experiencing agent However, there was a small but non-negligible proportion of the population who attributed significant phenomenal experience to, to ChatGPT. So one-third of the population said it has zero phenomenal experience, but two-thirds said it had some. And I think around 20% of people said it had phenomenal experience approaching that of humans. And what was fascinating was that that attribution of experience correlated with how much you use it so the more you used it the more you were likely to attribute some level of conscious experience to it now obviously we can't disentangle causality there it might be that you tend to use it because you think it's conscious right rather than you starting to think it's conscious because you're using it but we we were pretty surprised by that data so i think if i were having to bet initially i would have 
thought many more people would have essentially been right down at the bottom and just saying, this is just like a pocket calculator. But there were many more people than I expected to who were starting to say it had some kind of conscious experience. So this leads to then all these other questions that you might have about like what are the characteristics of the person using it that might drive that kind of attribution? What are the characteristics of the system? You know, perhaps certain ways of presenting information, certain ways of responding to prompts. So all of these are really nice empirical research questions that we can start doing experiments on. And Clara is continuing to do interesting work on this. So I think the answer to your question, Dave, is that we don't really know at the moment. We know there's some kind of level of attribution out there that we can quantify. But then I think this raises all these interesting questions about how that impacts on your moral judgments, on your on your um, user experience, um, your attitudes towards artificial intelligence more generally. Is this something you're then afraid of because you think it's conscious? There's, there's loads of fascinating questions for psychologists to get their teeth into. Oh, yeah, when you think that, that uh, you know, there's this model that a lot of people have um, of... Um, us as the the pinnacle of intelligence, if you like, and and everything is everything leads up to us, right? And everything, or, or even consciousness leads up to us, so we can mistreat animals because they're lower down the tree, or you know, mm. and and if we have this perception that AI is somehow above us, does that even change how we think about our responsibilities to them or the way that we deal with it? When we watch people respond to to ChatGPT, certainly there's a there's a there is something about the person themselves, like an emotional, expressive engagement mm. that delights someone, um, has a is totally different experience than someone who's just using it for just a quick kind of in and out answer, uh, and um, it, it and you would expect that that more emotional engagement is that more intimate engagement is going to have a different um it's going to have a different outcome for that person mm. over time yeah yeah i mean my my my, uh, my colleague at cambridge henry shevlin philosopher working on these issues about the future of intelligence and he gave a lovely talk recently at a workshop we organized on these issues and he was pointing out that it's possible, I think he's right about this, that essentially all the stuff we were talking about at the start of this podcast about how do you ever determine the intrinsic nature of consciousness in an artificial system? Like, is there a research program which you could do neuroscience in humans and eventually figure it out? He, he was suggesting that, you know, that's interesting academically, but it might be that society just moves on and that in 50 years' time, we're just used to assuming these things are conscious and that there's no real facts of the matter left. You know, people might debate it in journals, but essentially society might move to a position where this is just the, the assumption. All right. So, and I think that is then a really interesting question about, you know, how does that then intersect with what companies might be doing now? I think you, you mentioned Dave, like would that then lead you to somehow try and steer people's inferences towards thinking it's unconscious, for instance, you know, and it just reminds me a bit of like when, um, 
the my my son is four and when we have conversations with him about santa like we often try and um very like clearly demarcate demarcate all the fake santas that we see when we're walking around town to make sure that this is not going to like screw up his head when he thinks about the real santa <laughs> so, <laughs> is there a reason is there a need for you know ai companies to essentially like demarcate all the fake uh the fake ones so that when they eventually do build the real thing you know we'll know about it um so i think there's yeah there's really interesting questions to be answered there. i don't well, i don't know a, what the right answer is it's such a crazy paradox though because um you you and all of the surveys that I pretty much have ever run on this that I've ever seen, people want to know when they're talking to an AI. They really want to know that. And they, mm. they want to and, – and implicit in that is not – I think implicit in that is that there's a, a transparency, a command control. Whether it, 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 it is I want to know it's conscious or not, no, that those questions have never come up. But I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of implicit – binding there that it's like I want to know it's also mm. unconscious but then at the same time people's reactions and wanting to feel this intimacy wanting to to um, feel good about that interaction you know using pie and feeling better about yourself as a result mm. of having used these tools um, that, that paradox sort of exists there you want a little bit of both you want to know that it's not conscious and it's an AI, but you also want to know that feeling of connection and and sort of consciousness when you want it as opposed to when you don't. You know, there's a pick and choose aspect there. I know we're at time. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us again. I mean, this has been a wonderful conversation and let's do it again uh, soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been it's been great fun. Absolutely. No, it's been really, really fun topic. So I'd be glad to chat again. Stay